Thanks for tuning in to the Velocity Church Podcast. Here at Velocity, we love to hear about how lives are changed. And if that's you, let us know and send us an email at amen at findvelocity.org. Now enjoy today's message. I do have to explain one thing in this series is the fact that we teach in series. So what's that mean? That means if today is the only Sunday that you catch, you are going to walk away with an imbalanced view of what I'm trying to say. There's no way I could get everything that we need to talk about when it comes to sex, dating, being single, marriage, just in one sermon. And uh, so you need to commit to being here at every week in order to get the most out of it. Unless, of course, you have commitment issues, in which case it might be another reason to be here. But uh, if you weren't here last week, we are going to pick up right where we left off. We started with what has to be one of the most awkward verses in Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you just have to listen to last week's message. And we're going to pick up where we left off in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We went all the way through 1 Corinthians 6, uh, the last part, and we're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I'm not going to give all the context because I did that last week, but just to kind of set this up, Paul is writing a letter here to a church that is extremely dysfunctional in their relationship dealings. And he's trying to help them see some things. And in 1 Corinthians 7, I'm going to read about nine verses, and I really am just going to focus in on two for our message today. But I have to read the whole nine in order to give you context on it. So if you have your Bibles, you can look with me. We'll put the words on the screen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, It says this, now regarding the questions you asked in your letter, yes, it's good to abstain from sexual relations, but because there's so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fill his wife's needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over to her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other. Unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time, so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command, but I wish everybody were single just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God, one kind or another. So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. But if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry because it's better to marry than to burn with lust. Man, Paul just kind of goes straight for it, doesn't he? I'm calling this sermon today, if you're taking notes, I'm calling it burning questions, burning questions. I think we all come in to church sometimes with some burning questions about our relationships. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to look at what Paul says and really what God has to say to us about our relationships. Now, it's always my custom to pray before I get into God's word, and I do want to pray, but I also want to take a minute just to tell you uh, we're celebrating eight years today as a church. Isn't it awesome what God has done in eight years? And, uh, you know, every birthday is a little different. Some birthdays are bigger than others. We had a very special big birthday last year for our seven-year anniversary. Uh, For this one, we thought we'd keep it simple, but rather than, I like the birthday parties where you show up and you get a gift, 
rather than coming with a gift to bring. So we wanted to give everybody one of these journals. And uh, there's a couple things you can do. One, you can take notes. You could start today with some burning questions and uh, take notes in that. Or maybe you just want to keep it as a journal and chronicle the things that God is doing in your life. And when we celebrate nine years, you can look back and see how far God has brought you with just uh, coming to church and relationships and all those kind of things. So I want to encourage you with that. And uh, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get into God's Word. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to come to your presence today. God, I thank you that every time we open up your word, you speak. And I'm asking God that you'll do that again today, that you'll use me and that it'll be your word that goes forth, not my ideas or opinions or thoughts. But really, Lord, we open ourselves to what your Holy Spirit has to say to us. I know that so many of us come in with questions and we're looking for answers. But God, you know what we need to hear. So I thank you that you'll speak. We believe it. We receive it. And everybody who agrees with that can say in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, how many of you have ever gotten some mixed messages from someone? Anybody ever received mixed messages? It's frustrating, isn't it? Uh, All the married people are like elbowing each other right now. Like, yes, you always give me. Like, I know where this is going, Pastor. Relationships, you're talking mixed messages. It is really not where I was going, but it is frustrating when you're in a relationship and you're getting mixed signals. Maybe sometimes even uh, the relationship hasn't started yet and you feel like you're getting mixed signals. Like, oh, does this person like me? I can't tell. I mean, she said hello, but, um, you know, so maybe, she, I mean, if you're a guy and, and the girl says, it's like, yeah, she must like me. She said hello to me. Um, but, you know, and then on the flip side, it's like uh, if you're a girl and you text the guy, it's like, man, he didn't respond. He must hate me. It's like just mixed signals. You're, you're never really sure. But um, I'm really not so much talking about relationships. I think about this with my kids. My kids give me mixed messages all the time. Just this week, my daughter, she's three years old, Pippa, she uh, ran, jumped in my bed, and she said, Dad, I want you to rough me up. Now, before you start jumping to conclusions... You should know that this is a game that we play. Um, I, I teach my kids, it's like, hey, do you want me to rough you up? I'm going to teach you a lesson and um, wrestle them or whatever. She's like, Dad, I want you to rough me up. I was like, no, you don't want me to rough you up. Yeah, no, I do want you to rough me up. So I'll start, you know, wrestling her and tickling her. She's like, Dad, stop tickling me. And then I stop. She's like, Dad, tickle me. Dad, stop tickling me. Dad, tickle me. This goes on for like five minutes. Mixed messages from my children. And uh, I feel like, Sometimes that's the way it is when we come to church. Like we, we hear two different things and we walk away feeling confused about the message. And what I don't want you to hear in this sermon or in this series where we're talking about relationships, what I don't want you to hear is that there's something wrong with you if you're single. Because sometimes we communicate that way in church. Can we be real? Like, like we almost communicate that marriage is the gold standard, and if you're single, then you're just second class. But that's not what this passage is saying. It's definitely not what I'm saying either, because, you know, Paul is actually single when he's writing this. We see that in the text. He, he's writing to them, and most scholars believe that He actually was married at one point because in order to be at the position he was at in Jewish culture, you would have had to have taken a wife. But the text tells us that he is single, and so most people believe that 
his wife must have died at some point because he also wouldn't have been able to stay in that position if he would have divorced his wife. And so he doesn't have a wife anymore, but we find out that he's speaking to them. And that's helpful for me because what that tells me is regardless of the position you're in, whether you're single, divorced, married, remarried, you can relate to Paul and Paul can relate to you. He knows what it's like to be single. He knows what it's like to be married. He knows what it's like to have been married and not be married any longer. And now he's writing to this church that struggled in this area of sex, dating, marriage, and singleness. And he's wanting to bring some clarity to their situation because everybody loves relationship advice from a single person. So in order to understand this, you got to understand the context. And, and Paul, he's taking some questions from people about the complications they're facing, and he's wanting to speak into that. Because if you notice, the very first verse that I read uh, in this chapter, before Paul gets into his message, this is what he says. Now, regarding the questions you asked in your letter. So apparently the Corinthian church has compiled a list of questions and they're wanting to ask Paul, hey, we need to know how do we handle this situation? How do we deal with this? And what you're gonna see if you read through this, what we just read, and if you continue to read on, is that Paul is gonna take some time now to answer those questions. They're asking things like, hey, what should you do about widows? Or what about people who've been divorced? Or what if we choose to be celibate? Is that okay? Uh, people who choose to be single, are they more spiritual than people who choose to be married? Or what if my spouse isn't a believer? What should I do in that situation? And they ask a bunch of these questions. And he's about to answer those questions. But I want to point out something, that this is chapter 7 in his letter to them. And he's just now getting around to answering their questions. Here's why. Because there's often a big difference between the questions we're asking and the issues that we're facing. I've just discovered that God is not nearly as concerned with answering my questions as much as he is concerned with dealing with my issues. And there's a difference because Paul's doing something really unique. He, he goes through this chapter and he doesn't even mention their questions. Six chapters. And he starts talking to them about here's the questions that you should be asking. Here's the stuff that you need to be dealing with. Here's what you really need to know. And maybe that's the question we need to ask ourselves before we go any further in this, is do I want answers to my questions or do I want help with my issues? Do I want answers to my questions or do I want help with my issues? Because sometimes the questions that we're asking aren't the issues that we're really facing. So, so sometimes the things that we want to know about don't really indicate the depth of the issues that we're dealing with. And it's very possible that you came to church today with some honest questions, some real questions about your relationship, some valid questions, questions like, how do I know if I should marry this person? How do I know when the time is right? 
How do I find someone that I should marry? I'm already married to this person, but we're dealing with some problems and I want to know how to solve these problems. Maybe you came in here with some real honest questions, but perhaps the questions that you want to know about are not the real issues that you're facing. Perhaps there's an issue in your heart, an issue in your life that's more important than the question that you're asking. And God does want to give you some specific answers to your questions. But he also wants to give you some help for your issues. Otherwise, what we end up with is a lot of tips and tricks for our relationships, but no real progress for our problems. So Paul says, look, I want to talk about your real issues first. And now that we've talked about the real stuff, now I can answer your questions. And here's one of the questions that somebody posed to Paul. They're like, hey, Paul, is it okay if we don't get married and we just decide to be single? Is that okay? And Paul says, yeah, that's fine. Very first verse says, now regarding the questions you asked in your letter, yes, it's good to abstain from sexual relations. Look, you want to stay single? That's great. That's fine. You're no better. You're no worse. In different seasons, we have different callings and different strengths in our lives and things that we experience, and it's good. In other words, what he's saying is that you can be single, you can be unmarried, and still be complete. You can be single and still not be alone. Just because you choose to be celibate doesn't mean that you have to live solitary. You can have a church family. You can have deep friendships. You can have opportunities that others don't have. Opportunities that married people don't have anymore. Opportunities that people with kids have long forgotten about. You have some advantages as a single person. There's some things you can do. In fact, he says in verse 7, he says, I wish everybody was single, just like me. What do you mean by that, Paul? He's saying, look, it's, it's easier to serve God in some ways when you're single. Like when you're single, if you want to give money, you can give money. You don't have to have a budget committee meeting. You don't have to talk about kids' college funds. You want to give it, you can give it. You want to serve in church? You can serve in church. You don't have to clear your schedule with football games. You don't have to clear your schedule. with you Make sure everything's lining up with your spouse. There's some advantage. You want to go home? You can watch whatever you want to watch on TV. You don't have to fight over the remote. You don't like the TV on? You can leave the TV off. There's some advantages to being single. And Paul's saying, look, if you're in a season called single, it's not bad. There's good things about being single. He's reaffirming the fact that singleness in our culture is not as strange as people often make it sound. Saying you don't need another person to fulfill you. You don't need another person to complete you, Jerry Maguire. And he, he proves this by saying, look, look at me. I'm Paul. I wrote most of the New Testament. And I did it while I was single. That's Paul's resume. Wrote the Bible. And uh, he, he did it single. And so he talks about that. And he's like, look, if you can stay unmarried, 
That's great. There's some advantages to that. So in verse 8, he says, So I say to those who aren't married and widows, it's better to stay unmarried, just like me. But, and this is a big but. How many of you like big buts? In the Bible, I mean. Big buts in the Bible. They're good because they serve as transitions. And he says, but, hey, it's good if you're single, but it's also hard. He's saying, Let, let's be real about it. If they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry because it's better to marry than to burn with lust. So he says, look, if you can't stay single, then get married. And the way Paul says it, like, he makes it sound so simple. It's like, look, it's great if you can stay single, but if you just have this uncontrollable desire, if you've got this fire inside of you, then you should get married because that will put it out. No, it's, it's not what he's saying. He says, he says look, he says it's better to marry than to walk around with an uncontrollable lust. Now, that sounds good, but if I'm single, I'd be reading that and think like, yeah, thanks for the advice, Paul. Let me just go on Amazon and order me a wife. Let me just call an Uber and have my husband delivered. Like, I don't know what you think this is, Paul, but it's not quite simple. And can I just be honest about the struggle? Because if you're a Christian, and if you come to church, you believe the things of the Bible, well, what we tell you is, hey, if you're single, don't settle. Don't, don't settle. Don't just marry any person. Don't just compromise. Don't just accept. It. Like, don't settle. Find somebody who's going to be a good fit. Don't settle. But on the other side, we also say, don't sin. So we're telling you don't settle, but we also say don't sin. And in the middle, there's a struggle. Can we be honest about the struggle? Struggle's real. And I think part of the reason there's a struggle is more of a cultural one than a biblical one. Because we, we have this concept that there is one right person out there for you. And that's not something that's taught in the Bible. How many of you believe there is one right person out there for you? If you believe that, just raise your hand and let everybody know you're wrong. Okay. <laughs> we have this concept that there's one right We get it from culture, from the movies that we watch. Because that's the way every story is set up, that there is one right person. And then we get frustrated in our relationships when all of our problems aren't solved in two hours because that's what we see in movies. And we're like, what's wrong with you? Look at them. Why can't you be more like him or like her? Because it's a movie. That's why he got paid $10 million to say that. <laughs> Give me a script. I'm going to look awesome too. So, we have this concept that there's a right one, you know, one who's compatible with you, one who will love you unconditionally, one who's going to treat you right, one who has what you're looking for. 
And then we get into a situation where things aren't going right. And that's why we so often we call it quits because, well, they're just not the right one. But scripture doesn't talk so much about finding the right one as much as it talks about being the right one. And that's the question, second question that we should ask ourselves. So am I trying to find the right one or am I trying to be the right one? So there's a difference. This is important to point out because if you'll focus on being the right one, God has the ability to put you in the right place and develop within you the right passions. And so, yes, it's better to marry than to burn with passion, but it's also better to learn to control your passion than to marry an idiot. It's better to learn to control this this desire for relationship, this longing for intimacy that Paul calls a fire. He says it's like a fire, this, this burning. That's interesting to me that Paul would use this metaphor for fire when he's talking about this desire for relationship, this desire for intimacy in our life. Because when you think about fire, one of its qualities is that it's purifying in nature. What that tells me is that that desire inside of you is not a bad desire. It's a pure desire. It's a good desire. It's, a, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a God thing. It was put there by God. But when our passion gets misplaced, just like a fire, it can cause a lot of destruction. Now, Moses is a great example of this. I don't know if you know much about Moses. He's a pretty prominent figure in the Old Testament. But Moses was a guy who knew something about passion and he knew something about fire. Uh, One of Moses' claims to fame is in Exodus chapter 3, God calls Moses and speaks to him from a burning bush, this bush that does not burn up. But that's not really where Moses' story starts. Moses, he had a passion long before God called it out within him. And if you want to know about Moses' story, you can read about it in Exodus chapter 2. It says in Exodus 2 verse 11, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. Now, Moses was conflicted. If you don't know his story, Moses grew up in the palace of Pharaoh. He was Pharaoh's adopted son, but he wasn't an Egyptian. He was a Hebrew. And the reason this is complicated is because the Hebrews were slaves to the Egyptians. So he goes out one day after he's grown up and he sees this Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his own people, and it stirs up a passion within him. Looking this way and that, swiping left, swiping right, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting, and he asked the one in the wrong, hey, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Now, the irony is that God had, in fact, called him to be a ruler and a judge. It was a mantle that was on him. It was spoken over him. He was called to be a deliverer of his people. 
His passion was good, but it was misplaced. And so once he realized he made a mistake, he tries to cover it up. But just because you hide something in the sand doesn't mean it went away. Just because you covered something up doesn't mean it won't come out. Just because you deleted your history doesn't mean that you cleared your conscience. So his past catches up with him. And when he hears this, he's afraid because now he's exposed. And so Pharaoh wants to kill him. And he tries to, but Moses flees and he goes to live in Midian where he's on the run and hiding out for 40 years, all because of a misplaced passion. Now, the passion was good, but it was in the wrong place. And that's the third question we need to ask ourselves. Is, is my passion in the right place? Is it in the right place? What Moses felt was a good passion. He saw one of his people being taken advantage of, and he knew he was called to be a deliverer. So he sees what's going down, and he thinks, this is my opportunity. It lights a fire inside of him. But it's one thing to have a right passion. It's another thing to express it in the right way. And you can have the right passion with the wrong expression, and it turns a good thing into a terrible thing. A good thing done the wrong way ends up being a bad thing. Just like I told you last week, I've been working out pretty much every day, and uh, I've been doing that for the past three weeks. I'm on a streak, all right? Summer was not so good for me, but the last three weeks, I'm making it happen. And uh, what you got to know about me, like when I go to the gym, you've got 40 minutes, and I'm going to get as much done as I can in that 40 minutes. I want to get my heart rate up. I want to break sweat. Uh, get my pump on, and then move on with my day. I don't want to spend any more time at the gym than I have to. So I've been going, but man, this week, I must have um, not done something quite right. Because on Monday, I hurt myself so bad, I could barely stand up. I could barely walk. I, I, I could, the most comfortable position was sitting down. It made the entire week difficult. Now, the passion was good. Working out is good. But when you do it the wrong way, and would you quit smirking at me and judging me like because of my workout? All right. I can see you, I can feel your judgment in my heart right now. But when you do a good thing the wrong way, it turns a good thing into a bad thing. Can I tell you, sex is a good thing. Sex is a good thing. It's a God thing, it's a gift. The passion is pure, but the passion needs parameters in order to serve its purpose. And what happens is a lot of us have a good passion, a pure passion, but no parameters. And instead, it ends up hurting us, ends up destroying us. That's what happened to Moses. He had the right passion, but the wrong expression. It's kind of like, just going with this fire illustration, if I built a fire right here, I get the logs, I get the lighter fluid, I get the matches. Well, everybody's going to see what the problem is right away. There's not a problem building a fire. The problem is building a fire in the wrong place. There, there's no place to contain it. 
This is not the proper place for it. And if you build a fire without it being in the right place, you're going to end up getting burned. That same substance that burns down forests in the summer is the same substance that will keep you warm in the winter. Nothing wrong with the fire. It's a good fire. Fire purifies. It brings warmth. It creates light. But if you start it in the wrong place, you put your passion in the wrong place, it'll burn your home to the ground. It's a misplaced passion. And so many of us could avoid a lot of pain in our lives if we realize that before we build a fire, we need some place to put it. Some of you are throwing logs on a fire that's in the wrong place, and you're wondering why the flames are getting so high. It's because you're in the wrong place. You're building it in the wrong text conversations. You're building it on the wrong apps. You're building it in the wrong sites. You're building it in the wrong conversations. You're building it in the wrong place. Nothing wrong with the fire, but where you're putting it is the wrong place. But I want to close with something positive because it's really interesting to me how Paul decides to close this particular section where he's answering their first question. Paul says, if you're single, it's good. If you're married, it's good. It's how you approach either one that determines how it will be in your life. He says, I wish everybody were single just like I am. Now, that's kind of crazy. Like, who says that? I wish all of you could be as awesome as I am. That's, that's what I'm trying to say here. Why can't you be single like me? Nobody's saying, hey, I, I wish all of you were like I am because there's a way in which my singleness gives me a focus to my life. And it's very complicated when you're in a relationship with someone else. He says, yet... Each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. Now, usually when we talk about spiritual gifts, we talk about things like that are visible, right? Like that person has a gift of serving. That person has a gift of generosity. That person is a gifted singer or gifted preacher. We talk about things we can see. And so you could kind of look at this and think, well, there's a sense in which you're saying, hey, if you're married or you're single, it's a gift. So stop envying what somebody else has because what you have is a gift. If you're, if you're in a season of singleness, it's a gift. I know it wasn't on your gift registry. I know it doesn't feel like it, but it's still a gift. If you're married, it's a gift. I know when you opened the box, it doesn't look like the picture, but it's still a gift. And that's one way you could look at it. But there's another way to look at this too. And that's because the Greek word for gift is charis, charisma. Charisma literally means a gift of grace. It's a grace gift. And so there's a sense in which he's saying, look, the real gift is not being married. And the real gift is not being single. They're both a gift, but they're not the greatest gift. The real gift that God gives you is grace. And no matter which one you're in right now, 
That's what you really need. You need the grace to do it right. If you're going to be married, it's going to take grace. And if you're going to be single, it's going to take grace. And that's how I wanted to close this sermon with this question. Is, am I looking for my gift or am I living in my grace? The real gift is grace. And some of you are so focused on the gift that you want from God that you're missing the grace that he's already given you. I know some of you want a man or some of you want a woman. You, you want a person in your life. But don't miss the grace you have right now because you're so focused on the gift that you want. I know some of you are married and you're facing real issues right now. But the real gift isn't that God would come in and just fix all of your issues in this moment. The real gift is that God would give you grace to trust him in the middle of your issues. The gift is grace. 